Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. You're watching CNN. I'm Eleni Jokas in Dubai. Welcome to the show. And we begin with the latest on the war in Ukraine, Russian forces advancing in the city of Severodonetsk in the Luhansk region. Ukrainian officials say at least two people were killed and five others were injured in the latest Russian attacks, as you can see on this map. This, as Russian foreign minister says, uh, liberating the Luhansk and Donetsk regions is, quote, an absolute priority for Moscow. Meanwhile, Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky visited troops on the front lines in the country's second largest city on uh, Kharkiv on Sunday. And it was his first trip outside the capital Kyiv region since the Russian invasion began in late February. In southern Ukraine, the country's military releasing this video saying it has launched a counterattack near the key port city of Kherson. Ukraine claims Russian forces were pushed back about 10 kilometers there. Matthew Chance is live in Kyiv with more. Matthew, good to see you. I want you to give me a sense of the latest with regards to the battle that we're seeing in the eastern parts of the country and some of the messaging coming through from Moscow. Yeah, well, that battle continues to rage in the Donbass region in the east of the country, particularly around a city called Severodonetsk, which is in the Luhansk region. That represents uh, the region that makes up about half of the Donbass. Um, and there has been fighting around there for several days. That's continuing, but there is slow but significant progress by Russian forces to slowly take control. In the face of very strong resistance, we have to say, uh, from Ukrainian defenders of that region, uh, but there is you know, an advance taking place by the by the Russians. And of course, the Russians have said, uh, Lavrov, uh, Sergei Lavrov, the Russian foreign minister, saying this in an interview recently with French television, uh, that taking the Donbass is a priority for Russian forces. The Russians reiterating that that is one of the, the aims of this conflict that they launched uh, back in February. Meanwhile, the president of Ukraine, Vladimir Zelensky, has made a, a, a unique visit, really. The first trip he's taken outside of Kiev since the conflict began. Um, and he's made it to Kharkiv, which is a Ukrainian city in the east of the country, very close to where the fighting is now taking place, but a, a scene of ferocious battles over the course of the past couple of months. So Ukrainian uh, forces eventually pushing back uh, Russian troops that had, that had come in to conquer the place. And you know, Vladimir Zelensky, President Zelensky, you know, talking about the destruction that had been uh, wrought there by Russian forces, meeting the soldiers that are still there engaged in counterattacks against Russian forces and thanking them for the sacrifice that they continue to make. Take a listen. I would like to thank each one of you for your service. You risk your lives for all of us and our country. Thank you for defending Ukraine's independence. Stay safe. 
All right. So as as that fighting takes place in the northeast of Ukraine and as that presidential visit ends, of course, there is more fighting taking place elsewhere in the east of the country. You know, so as Russian forces advance in the northeast corner of Ukraine, in the southeast corner, Russian, uh, sorry, Ukrainian uh, officials say that their forces are launching a counteroffensive there and trying to recapture some of the territory that's been conquered by Russian troops over the course of the past couple of months. And so, you know, it is a very dynamic front line uh, at the moment, and it is you know, ebbing and flowing between the Ukrainian and, and the Russian side, Eleni. Uh, very fluid situation. Matthew, so, thank you so much uh, for that update. Now to an exclusive CNN report into alleged war crimes in Butcher and the images which shocked and disgusted the world. We're learning more about the investigation of the Russian brigade believed responsible. CNN's Melissa Bell is in Ukraine with a story. Russian tanks entering the village of Lipivka in late February now in charge here of life and of death. Six weeks later, now back in control of the village, Ukrainian authorities begin counting the dead. I can't look, says one mother. It was only after the tanks had withdrawn that Ukrainian prosecutors were able to start piecing together what had happened. They now suspect these men of crimes in violation of the rules and customs of war. On this street, nine soldiers of the 64th Brigade imprisoned unarmed civilians. They detained and tortured them for 10 days, inflicting bodily harm and carried out mock executions. We wanted to see for ourselves where some of these alleged crimes might have been committed. Going door to door with pictures of the soldiers, we meet Andre, who recognizes one of them. Is it locked? He leads us down to a cellar, where he says Russian soldiers tried to kill a group of men and women who'd been hiding. They used grenades and rifles, he says. But the civilians managed to survive by heading further into the darkness. This is the scene of just one of the alleged crimes of the men of the 64th Brigade. It is littered with cigarettes and bullet casings. Back in Lipivka, we show Mikola Znak, a local resident, a picture of Commander Vasil Litvinenko. He recognizes him immediately and invites us into what's left of his home. He and his family hid in the woods, he says, while his home was destroyed by the Russian artillery that killed his neighbor. When he tried to come back, he says the commander seemed surprised. He said, what are you doing here? You should have been burnt alive. Mikola still doesn't know why he decided to let him live. Raping of people, torturing of people, for what? Because they wanted to scare civilians, scare our citizens of towns, villages, cities. After withdrawing from the Bucha area, the brigade's men were promoted by Moscow. The Kremlin denies any involvement in the mass killings. The 64th Brigade was created after the Georgian War, according to Ukrainian intelligence. 
The soldiers of this brigade, he says, were noted for their robberies and rapes. But instead of bringing order to the brigade, the Russian command armed it, he explains, with modern weapons and sent it into Ukraine. Beyond working out exactly what the Russian soldiers who occupied this area north of Kyiv might have been responsible for, the big question for Ukrainian prosecutors now is where they are. Even as Ukrainian military intelligence suggests that some of those men may still be alive and back in Ukraine fighting, prosecutors are focusing on what evidence they can gather. Beyond those war crimes that they're seeking to prosecute them under Ukrainian law, they're also gathering evidence, they say, that they hope to bring to the ICC, which is carrying out its own investigations and will be in a position to decide whether or not to look into possible crimes against humanity. Melissa Bell, CNN, Kyiv. Well, meanwhile, Europe's unity against Russia is being tested by disagreements on a Russian oil ban. EU leaders are arriving this hour for a crisis meeting on the wall. The bloc remains deadlocked over the embargo that would be the key plank of fresh sanctions. Anna Stewart joins me now. Anna, you've been following all the rounds of sanctions since the very start. And we know some are really difficult to agree, agree on. We know that gas is out of the question right now. But oil has been the big one on the table and it's receiving a lot of pushback from some countries. What are we expecting from this meeting? So the EU Commission announced a potential ban of all Russian oil a month ago now. And ever since, it's been negotiated and discussed by EU leaders with lots of fierce opposition, particularly from the likes of Hungary, of course, a landlocked nation that relies a lot on Russian oil. EU leaders are arriving today for a two-day summit. We've just had the German Chancellor, Olaf Scholz, arrive. He says that he is optimistic uh, that the EU will stand together against Russia. He says everything is pointing towards consensus. But just two hours ago, the Estonian prime minister said, actually, it's not realistic to expect an agreement on the sixth package of sanctions today. It is largely regarding the idea of an oil embargo. And at this stage, it looks like already a big compromise has been reached, not just giving some of those countries opposing a total ban more time to get there, but actually removing pipelined oil from the equation altogether. So maybe only banning seaborne oil. Now, to give you an idea of what that would mean, 27% of the EU's oil comes from Russia. About 35% of that is actually uh, delivered via pipeline. And that represents a lot when you're looking at certain countries like Hungary, Hungary, Czech Republic and Slovakia. Slovakia, for instance, gets 100% of its Russian oil via a pipeline. So this is why this may be the big exemption. It weakens, of course, the overall effect, though, of banning Russian oil, particularly with Russian, uh, sorry, with oil prices high. It does mean that Russia is able to get a lot of revenue, even from the small amounts of oil, it would still be able to export to the EU. Uh, there are other elements in this round of packages. More sanctions for certain individuals, uh, cutting off three Russian banks from SWIFT, the global payments network. That includes Spurbank, the biggest bank. Uh, and also uh, removing some consultancy and financial services from Russian entities. Now, again, this is an area we may see some compromise because that was expected to include removing the ability for European insurance firms to insure oil tankers that have Russian oil on board. Now, that would have had a huge cost for countries like Malta and Greece. So you can see that while the EU, with all of its 27 member nations, may agree politically on the impact they want to have with Russia, they want to show unity, when it comes to the economics, it's a very different story. And that is what they have to contend with over the next few days. You can see the arrivals right there. Lenny? 
Yeah, uh, Viktor Orban, the Prime Minister of Hungary, arriving as well. And as you mentioned, Hungary being one of those countries that has been very resistant to an oil ban. But as you've said, Anna, really interesting list that we're looking at. And of course, a double-edged sword in terms of impact on European countries. Anna, thank you so much. Um, we'll be catching up on this much later. Appreciate it. Now, the European Union is trying to hammer out its ban on Russian oil. One non-EU nation, Serbia, has struck a separate deal with Russia to provide it with natural gas. Serbia says the three-year agreement provides it with the cheapest prices in Europe. We've got Claire Sebastian joining us now. Claire, really good to see you. I mean, uh, this is where we're starting to see polarization occurring, where some people, are, you know, countries are looking at the economic ramifications and they're looking at cheapest gas supplies and they're looking to Russia. But what does this mean politically here for Europe? Well, Serbia is not an EU country, as you say, Eleni. It is an EU candidate, though. It has been so since 2012. But during the war in Ukraine, it has maintained a neutral stance. It hasn't sort of officially come out against Russia. It hasn't imposed any sanctions on Russia. And clearly it is sticking with that political stance. The the, the prime minister of Serbia in a conversation with a with President Putin last night, the Kremlin saying that it's going to ensure uninterrupted supply of gas to Serbia. Serbia, the the Prime Minister also saying that this is just the first part of a new gas contract, this three-year deal. The question, of course, you know, aside from the political neutrality in this war, why why this stance? Well, Serbia and Russia, of course, have sort of historic ties, the Slavic people, the Eastern Orthodox Church. There's also been the sort of lurking issue of Kosovo in this war. President Putin has consistently re- referred to the NATO intervention of Kosovo, not only in this war with Ukraine, but previous conflicts involving breakaway republics like those in Georgia as a sort of way of of justifying his intervention, NATO's sort of uh, pretext that it wanted to, to, to protect the Albanian majority in Kosovo from a genocide. Putin has said, we're trying to protect the people of the Donbass from a genocide. So there's that historical link here, but clearly Serbia setting out its store. And I think this taken together with the fact that the EU has yet to, 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 to sort of reach an agreement on that sixth package shows just how much leverage Russia still has when it comes to its energy supplies. Yeah, uh, really interesting. Um, You know, you mentioned quite a few elements there. So it's the economic justification here. And then, of course, you've got got politics in the middle of all of this. Serbia being a EU candidate, um, what have we heard in response from the Europeans? Because many countries are actually going ahead with what is on the UN sanctions list. And it's becoming more and more difficult to do any business with Russia. But, of course, gas isn't on the list right this minute. Yeah, you know, we haven't heard much from from the European Union uh, in terms of this new gas deal uh, between Serbia and Russia. Frankly, the European Union is is very busy with other things at the moment. But, you know, I think the politics of this are striking, especially since Serbia is an EU candidate. They continue to work towards that. It is, of course, a very long process. We see that reflected in discussions over Ukraine potentially joining the EU. As I said, they've been a candidate since 2012, but, but they are a landlocked country, as you say, so there are sort of economic elements in this as well. They, they are very reliant on Russia for their gas. And they did say, look, this will be advantageous. These will be some of the cheapest prices in Europe. That, again, is reflected in the discussions that we see between EU members today. The, 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 the price of Russian gas uh, is, and, and oil, in fact, is critical as well, because if some countries continue to import uh, from Russia, they will then have an advantage over others 
who don't. So an extremely complicated issue. But I think Serbia is 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 significant in the fact that that you know they are aligning themselves through this economic deal. Yeah, exactly. Speaks volumes, doesn't it? Clay Sebastian, thank you so much. Good to see you. All right, and these are the stories making headlines around the world. Victims of last week's Texas school massacre beginning to be laid to rest. Today, the first of the funeral services for um, them are taking place. Ten-year-old uh, Amiri Joe Garza and also for 10-year-old Maite Rodriguez. Local funeral homes say it will take weeks to bury the victims. The World Health Organization says it has received reports of more than 250 confirmed monkeypox cases and 120 other suspected cases globally. Most are in Europe and in North America. No deaths have been reported so far. The WHO calls the global public health risk level moderate. And straight ahead, as Europe works to ban Russian energy, I speak to a Greek official about making up for the shortfall. And lifting lockdown, Shanghai plans to ease some COVID restrictions for businesses on June 1st. That's after months of shutdowns. We're live in China. Welcome back. Now, Europe's united front against Russia is starting to crumble, warns Germany. This as differences over a Russian oil ban threaten to fracture the bloc's response. EU leaders are meeting in Brussels this hour to discuss the Ukraine crisis and fresh sanctions. To unlock those, they need agreement on an oil embargo. Joining me now is Christos Dimas. Greece's Deputy Minister of Development and Investment. Deputy Minister, thank you so much. Really good to see you. Um, look, this is an important moment. We're talking about the sixth round of sanctions when it comes to Russia. And we're seeing disagreement on some of the sanctions on the list. Estonia says that they're not hopeful we'll see an agreement. Germany seems to be a lot more hopeful about what they'll see at this meeting, even though they're worried about a fractured, unified uh, Greece. Where do, uh, uh, Europe, rather, where, where does Greece stand with regards to uh, the summit right now and signing off on all the sanctions? First of all, allow me to say that uh, Greece has condemned Putin's war in Ukraine from day number one. Uh, at the EU summit meeting, uh, Prime Minister Mitsotakis uh, is working in order to see how Europe can be transformed as soon as possible into an in into a energy independent uh, continent. Uh, whereas Putin's goal uh, is to divide Europe and uh, try to to break this uh, this unity on the in, on the issue. A Deputy Minister, is Greece pro all of the sanctions that are currently on the table right this minute? Of course, including Greece oil, is... Uh, including, you know... Greece, Greece is in favour of the, of the sanctions uh, and we are taking lo a lot of initiatives uh, inside the country in order to see how we can be less dependent in, uh, in Russian oil. So we are creating floating storages and regasification uh, units uh, we are also uh, fully developing a new pipeline, connecting Greece and Bulgaria, uh, supplying it with gas from Azerbaijan. Uh, we are fast-tracking infrastructure for uh, renewable sources of energy, which have been a priority for this government. But we are also uh, undertaking important uh, developments for uh, creating electricity, uh, undersea electricity cables to import uh, electricity from uh, Israel. 
so we are making uh, a, a very big uh, effort in order to be less dependent on uh, Russian, Russian gas and oil. Yeah, absolutely. Look, um, we know that the Germans, specifically the economy minister, said and fears that EU unity was starting to crumble. Does your government share the same anxieties? Yes, of course it does, uh, because we have a lot of concern from uh, many European uh, Union leaders about uh, about the sanctions. But we are all very hopeful that uh, today's EU summit meeting uh, will will help uh, all of the EU member states uh, understand that uh, peace, stability, and security, and uh, uh, standing up on our on our values are extremely crucial. It is a priority for all of the world. So we are hopeful that uh, today's EU summit meeting will have a very good uh, final uh, result. How, how concerned are you, Deputy Minister, that Serbia has just signed a three-year gas deal with Russia? Uh, of course we are concerned uh, because we want to have a, a common stance not only within the European Union but in the European continent. Uh, so we would like to have support from uh, all of the member countries, not only of the Union, part of the European continent. This is an international yeah. issue. Uh, it is uh, uh, of uh, uh, paramount importance for everybody. Uh, and uh, all of the countries should agree uh, that uh, the invasion in Ukraine uh, is something that they should condemn, not only in words, but in action. Um, you are currently in New York, um, and we know that you, you know Greece and, and a lot of Greek delegates have been on a roadshow, so to speak. This follows Prime Minister Mitsotakis's visit uh, and address to Congress. What is your message in the U.S., and what are you trying to achieve? I'm currently at New York, uh, attending the New York Mediterranean Business Summit of the Economist. Uh, our message is that Greece is a pillar of stability in southeastern Europe and the Balkans. Uh, but at the same time, apart from being uh, a global touristic destination, we are open for business. There are important business opportunities in Greece. Uh, we have had one of the yeah. largest growth rates in the European Union. We have significantly decreased unemployment. So uh, we do hope to see how we can uh, attract more and more uh, businesses, uh, more and more investment in the country. Uh, and uh, uh, continue the trend that we have had in the last two years. Um, we, I really want to talk about Turkey as well. And President Erdogan recently said that Prime Minister Mitsotakis doesn't exist to him anymore. Turkey is also making it very clear that they do not want the Swedes and the Finns to join in NATO. Greece is a very important NATO member, one of the biggest contributors to NATO. What is your stance right now in terms of the, cha the challenges that could be emerging with your neighbor, not only from rhetoric, but also action? Uh, Greece uh, wants uh, uh, peace and stability and respect uh, of international uh, law and uh, human rights uh, in the area. Uh, so we always make sure to respect international uh, law. Uh, we are working with our NATO allies and our EU allies uh, in order to uh, achieve these goals. Uh, it would have been much better if we could work with all of our neighboring countries uh, in order to support uh, such actions. Uh, unfortunately, uh, President Erdogan uh, uh, made, uh, made these statements uh, a couple of days ago. Uh, I, I hope that uh, uh, the tensions between Greece and Turkey 
are scaled down. Everybody wants a, a, a peaceful uh, uh, well-being between uh, the two countries in the area. Uh, so I'm I'm quite sure that uh, in the near future this will uh, 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 will tone down. Thank you very much, Deputy Minister. Really good to see you. Much appreciated for your time. That was Christos Limas, Greek Deputy Minister of Development and Investments. All right, and coming up, summertime scorcher U.S. motorists hitting the roads this Memorial Day weekend as gas prices hit record highs. And they're not the only ones feeling pain at the pump. The outlook for global petrol prices coming up next. Welcome back. Now, U.S. stock markets are closed for Memorial Day and they will be back up and running on Tuesday. German and French stocks have begun the trading week firmly in the green, a continuation of more positive mood that we've seen for global equities in the past week. Asia finished Monday's session with gains as well. Shares in Japan and Hong Kong jumped more than 2%. Oil is higher as well. Both Brent and U.S. crude are up about half a percent. There's no stopping Brent crude. Look at that, $116 a barrel. We're sitting at multi-year highs as the European Union discusses a sweeping oil ban against Russia. The rising price of gasoline not far from the mines of U.S. motorists this Memorial Day. The unofficial start of the summer driving season, the price at the pump is now at record highs in the States. And no relief is in sight for motorists in other parts of the globe as well. Rahel Solomon joins me now. Record highs. I mean, this is a shocking scenario. We've seen uh, petroleum reserves released to try and alleviate some of the pressure, clearly not having an impact right now. Could you give me an idea of what it's like just this minute to fill up your tank and how different it was, say, the beginning of the year to what we're seeing today? Well, Eleni, good to be with you. The difference is if you didn't notice the cost at the pump before, you absolutely are noticing it now. It's hard not to notice. Prices uh, right now across the country, an average of $4.61 a gallon. In every state in the U.S., Eleni, prices are at least $4 a gallon. That is the first time that has ever happened. And so we want to you know, add a caveat. Of course, this is not what some of our European neighbors are experiencing much lower when you think about per gallon costs. But when you think about the fact that top line inflation is much higher here in the U.S. So you couple these gas prices with uh, rising prices for food, rising prices for accommodations or shelter in terms of where you live, rising prices for essentially everything. You start to understand the sort of squeeze and the pressure that Americans are finding themselves in. And then you start to understand why there is so much pressure on U.S. President Joe Biden to do something about it. And so, Eleni, yes, you mentioned that he has already tapped strategic petroleum reserves, didn't make much of a significant impact. In terms of what else goes into the price of the pump, I want to re-bring uh, up that, that graphic we just had for you, just to give you a sense of sort of exactly what goes into the price that you see at the petrol pump. So you see taxes uh, at the top of that graphic. And there have been calls for uh, a federal gas tax holiday, not a ton of support for that. So we may see some of that happen at the state level. Refining, 17% of the costs we see. Uh, There have been calls for increased refining capacity, but experts that I talk to say that would take time. That's not something that would help in the short term. And then, of course, the bulk 60% uh, crude oil and so much of that dependent on supply and demand. And Eleni, there have also been calls to increase domestic production 
unlikely to create much of an impact in the short term either. A Dallas uh, Fed report recently saying that even under the most optimistic view, increasing domestic production would be a proverbial drop in the bucket. So not a lot of great options on the table for U.S. President Joe Biden. In terms of the outlook, every single expert I spoke to for this story, when I asked, look, what are your predictions for the short term, for the next six months? They're not optimistic because, of course, you have the war in Ukraine that appears to be uh, unfortunately dragging on. And you don't seem to have a ton of support from OPEC in terms of increasing production. Uh, OPEC having said in the past that they feel like prices are in balance, although over here in the U.S., they're they're feeling quite tight, Eleni. So uh, it doesn't look like there's much on the horizon to ease some of that pressure at the pump. There's something amiss with regards to the price and the supply demand scenario that we're hearing from OPEC and various countries. And I wonder how this is going to play out. But really great analysis. Thank you so much, Rahel. Good to see you. Now, authorities in Beijing are saying uh, that they're going to be uh, lifting some of those uh, COVID restrictions, even though COVID has surged after a single case was detected outside quarantine centers. Now, some 2 million people in that part of the city will be required to work from home. And it comes a day after Beijing allowed some public venues to partially reopen. Shanghai, meantime, also plans to ease restrictions on businesses later this week. We've got Selena Wang with us in Beijing for more. Uh, Selena, you've been going through so much since you arrived in China. I want you to give me a sense of what you're seeing right now in Beijing and also just the differences in, in response, I guess, by government, right? Because... The restrictions have been absolutely aggressive. It has been halting economic growth. It's been stopping people's lives. Um, And, you know, the zero COVID policy, I guess, still stands. Exactly. We're hearing this word reopening, but it's more like the slow lifting of restrictions because this is a country that is still sticking to zero COVID. So even one new COVID case counts as a resurgence in the outbreak. So for instance, in Beijing, just one new case was found and that resulted in hundreds of people in his building getting sent to centralized quarantine, around 5,000 people in his community getting locked down at home and about 2 million people in his district all having to work from home. So that just goes to show how even though restrictions can be easily loosened, how quickly and easily they can also be retightened and people get sent back into lockdown. But cases across China nationwide, they have come down significantly to just over 100 on Sunday. That's down from more than 800 last week in Beijing. They're reporting just more than a dozen cases on Monday. So we have started to see these public venues like parks and malls partially reopen with limited capacity. And all people who go and visit, they have to show a recent piece PCR tests taken in the last 48 hours. So people, they are starting to come back out. But again, this is cautious because our lives are still very much restricted. I'm regularly standing in line waiting to get a COVID test so I can have a green QR code that allows me to enter these venues. And I have to scan that code everywhere I go. So essentially, we are all tracked everywhere we go. So if there is an outbreak, authorities, they can very easily backtrack, figure out All right. Welcome back. And we're just efforting getting those comments from President Joe Biden a short time ago. And I believe uh, that he 
uh, was talking about Ukraine as well as gun control in the United States as he returned to the White House from Delaware a short time ago. Um, he has been, been very vocal, firstly, on Ukraine and importantly on uh, the shooting that happened in Texas and, of course, his government working very closely with lawmakers to try and figure out a way forward when it comes to gun control issues. Uh, we are going to try and get that commentary for you in just a short time. Um, as we work on that, we are going to be... All right, we are very close to getting uh, this commentary as well, as we say. OK, here we go. I'm going to listen in now with you. Joe Biden. Well, I've been pretty motivated all along. You know, the folks, uh, the folks who were victimized there and their families, they spent about three hours and 40 minutes with me. They waited all that time, and some came two hours early. And uh, the pain is palpable, and I think a lot of it's unnecessary. So I'm going to continue to push, and uh, we'll see how this works. Are you going to send long-range rocket systems to Ukraine? We're not going to send to Ukraine rocket systems that can strike into Russia. Sir, do you think there is anything different in how Republicans will approach the gun reform question now, given the circumstances? Since I haven't spoken to them, I don't know. But my guess is that they have a... If they, yes, I think they're going to have to take a hard look. Is there one element? Is it age? Is it red flag? Is it some component that you think could be most successful now? Well, that's hard to say because I've not been negotiating with any of the Republicans yet. And uh, I deliberately did not uh, engage in a debate about that with any Republicans in that we, when we were down controlling the families in Texas. Um, so I, I don't, I don't know what is the most, how far it goes. I know that it makes no sense to be able to purchase something that can fire up to 300 rounds. I know it makes, and I know what happened when we had rational action before, back in, in the with the law that I got back. It did significantly cut down mass murders. And so there's only one reason for something that can fire, you know, a hundred shots. I mean, and I, I'll just conclude with this. Look, when I first started doing hearings on the issue of what rational gun laws should be, it was during a period when I was a senator and the death rate was going up. Not that many more people were being shot, but the death rate was up. I went, I think it was, the, I'm not sure, I think it was Hahnemann Hospital in New York, whatever the largest trauma hospital is. And I sat with a trauma doctor. And I asked him, I said, what's the difference? Why are so many people, not, not that many more people are being shot. This is now 20 years ago, it was 25 years ago. I said, why are they dying? And they showed me an a, a, a x-ray. He said, a 22 caliber bullet will lodge in a lung, and we can probably get it out may be able to get it and save the life. A nine millimeter bullet blows the lung out of the body. So the idea of these high caliber weapons is of, there is simply no rational basis for it in terms of what about self-protection, hunting. I mean, I just, and remember, 
the Constitution, the Second Amendment, was never absolute. You couldn't buy a cannon when the Second Amendment was back. You couldn't go out and purchase a lot of weapons. And those who, not many are saying that anymore, but there was a while there where people were saying that, you know, the tree of liberty is water with the blood of patriots, and what we have to do is have to be able to take on the government when they're wrong. Well, to do that, you need an F-15, you know? You need a Abrams tank, I mean, so it's just, I, I, think, think, I, I think things have gotten so bad that everybody's getting more rational about it. At least that's my hope and prayer. I, I have a goal star moms in there. So I Sir, I know you want Congress to act, but do you believe as president you have a particular responsibility now? Oh, I know I have to, but I, I, there's a constitution. I can't dictate this stuff. I can do the things I've done, and any executive action I can take, I'll continue to take. But I can't outlaw a weapon. I can't, you know, change the background checks. I can't do that. And, you know, my whole career I've been doing it. Persuasion, yeah. But, you know, there's been a few things happening. I don't know you noticed it. You've had to travel. Well, McConnell, McConnell has ordered, uh, directed Senator Cornyn to search for a compromise. Do you really think there's something there, or are they just Look, making I, noise? I, 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 I don't know, but I think there's a realization on the part of rational Republicans, and I consider McConnell a rational Republican, and Cornyn is as well. Um, I think there's a recognition in their part that the Navy can't continue like this. You can't do this. I've got to go in. i got the gold star All right, President Joe Biden there talking extensively about gun control and also mentioning uh, Ukraine and Russia. Um, he spoke uh, about where he stands on gun control. He says that he hasn't been negotiating with Republicans just yet. He doesn't know where they stand. Um, and uh, it's his guess that among rational Republicans at this point in time, there must be some kind of realization that there needs to be movement on this as well. Um, with regards to Ukraine and Russia, he said that he won't send anything that can be fired into Russia. So this is a stance that the U.S. has taken uh, for quite some time. Interesting, he also mentioned back on onto gun control. Um, he says that the Second Amendment was never absolute um, and you couldn't buy the type of weapons you are, that are available right now when the Second Amendment was created. Um, and he says, I can't outlaw a weapon, uh, but lots of work needs to be done on that. And of course, you'll need uh, assistance from both sides of the aisle. All right, still to come, we're going to go to a short break and we'll bring you more news after this break. Stay with CNN. A controversial Israeli march through Jerusalem sparked fresh clashes between Israeli police and Palestinians on Sunday. Dozens were arrested and the Palestinian Red Crescent says 80 Palestinians were injured in Jerusalem alone. Atika Schubert has more. Jerusalem Day is a day that shows just how bitterly contested the city is. For Israelis, particularly Jewish nationalists, it has become a day to mark Israel's capturing of all the city, including East Jerusalem, in the 1967 war, and the holiest site in Judaism, the Western Wall. Thousands upon thousands converge on Jerusalem's old city, marching through with Israeli flags. Some chant, death to Arabs. This is one extreme among the marchers. 
Others here say the day should be a celebration, not a provocation. Most of the people want to live in peace, and, and you, as you can see, we live in peace. I didn't come to provoke someone. You, you understand I didn't come for it. I'm, I'm not uh, making problem. I'm not shouting, uh, die to the Arabs. You saw the guy that wanted the Arabs to be dead. I told him not, because I don't want them to, to be dead. I want them to be my neighbors. But you know, I don't want them to kill me the same, uh, at the same time. But for Palestinians, this is a day of provocation. When the Israeli flag march goes through one of the most disputed areas of East Jerusalem, and it's almost inevitable that tensions will boil over. Thousands of police are deployed, but scuffles still break out in the narrow cobblestone streets. Police fire pepper spray and swing batons. Palestinian residents say they feel angry, frustrated, and exhausted. We cannot live, no peace at home, no peace in the shop, no peace in the street, no peace anywhere. Now a settler could come hit me, he will go and arrest me. Where is justice? In a sea of flags, there is one that cannot be flown. The Palestinian flag. Israeli police quickly tackled the elderly man who dared to unfurl it. If the march of flags went ahead, Hamas warned, it would fire rockets from Gaza. Watch the skies, the militant group warned. What came instead was a small gesture of defiance instead of rockets, keeping Jerusalem's uneasy peace for another day. Atika Schubert for CNN in Jerusalem. A leftist former guerrilla and a social media star are headed for the next round in Colombia's presidential election. Left-wing Gustavo Petro will face off against the populist and self-proclaimed king of TikTok, Rodolfo Hernandez, on June 19th. The runoff comes after the first round of voting. Over the weekend, Stefano Botsebon joins me live with more, Stefano, I have to say, I can't you know, recall a time where I had such interesting candidates to look into. What can you tell me about the first round of voting? Yes, uh, Eleni, really um, surprise were expected and we did have surprise in yesterday's historic election here in Colombia. I think there are three things that needs to be highlighted. The first one is that the election itself was peaceful and quiet. In March we had uh, congressional elections to elect lawmakers here in Colombia and uh, there were widespread allegations of voter fraud. Yesterday instead all the candidates uh, um, accepted their results and congratulated each other swiftly, which speaks well of, of Colombia's um, democracy. The second one is that the Colombian political houses have fallen. This country has been ruled for the best part of the last 60 years by a closed group of, of politicians largely divided between conservatives and the liberal. Now, none of these historic parties that have ruled the country for so long have a seat at the table, which brings me to my third point, which is that uncertainty looms ahead for Colombia. You have two outsiders uh, fighting for the presidency. One is 
of course, Gustavo Petro, which we know already because he's at, a, at the third bid for the presidency. But Rodolfo Hernandez really is an incognita, really is an open question about what he will do once in power. He really came out of nowhere in the last three to four weeks to force his way into a runoff. And it's always tricky to compare local politics with international politics. But if you wish, there is a sort of like Bernie Sanders versus Donald Trump type of contest looming ahead here next month. And that means that everything that we've been taking for granted about Colombia is now put into question from the economic development that the country will take in the next four years, but also on its alliance with the United States. Colombia, one of the strongest alliance of, allies of Washington in South America, now taking the unbeaten path. Stefano Potsebon, thank you so very much. Great to see you. That's it for the show. Connect the World with Becky Anderson is up next. I'm Eleni Jokas in Dubai. Take care. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number Smart Beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So, you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.